Um, okay, there we go. All right, so I think we can just do the uh, intro again. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Three, two, one. Hey guys, welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why things are the way they are, which is also about why nothing seems possible. I'm your co-host, Emmett. And I'm John. And welcome to our first episode. We're, we're going to talk about a variety of things, but first we're going to start with the general problem of why nothing seems possible despite the fact that we're free-falling through a crisis. Um, and I'll start with a little bit of backstory. So earlier this year, before I got laid off due to this pandemic, I was working for an environmental organization and then a worldwide pandemic broke out and we re-geared, uh, likely out of panic to become a COVID research task force. I still don't know quite entirely what that means or meant then. But I do know that it meant for me that I ended up spending a lot of time looking into supply chain problems. For example, uh, what happened to all of our masks? Why don't we make any? Who does make PPE? Uh, How has that shifted over time? Uh, Why are over-the-counter drugs so expensive and so scarce? And at the same time, there was a familiar appeal to a famous crisis in world and especially U.S. history, the Great Depression of the 1930s. And people seem to be arguing that uh, whatever we do, uh, we could do it like the New Deal, where capital and labor, liberals and conservatives, can work together under the banner of the nation state settle some differences and do what's best for the American people. And instead what we got was the CARES Act, which was basically, oh, the 2008 bailout, um, except now Blackstone seems to own the treasury almost. Um, And we all, well, people like me got um, $600 a week for a couple months. Um, And now that's over. And It's understandably disconcerting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seems like in a dire moment, um, nothing happened. And I think part of that is, uh, well, there's a lot to go into there. But um, John, why don't we, um, what's been your sort of running thread on why nothing seems possible right now? The supply chain thing was was good to bring up because I think that we sort of have a pretty like disaggregated kind of system that we've received historically. Um, Even though I think in terms of like people with historical consciousness, 
we might have a pretty truncated one. Maybe that's like a global thing. I don't know. But like, it just sort of feels like things are away. I don't, you know, we don't really know how they got this way. And maybe it's not even worth thinking about. But I only briefly looked into supply chain stuff when it started, but I was shocked to learn how many seemingly critical industries were um, like sourced singularly from one other nation. So let's say if there's problems with China, which there were, well, a lot of medical supplies were coming from there. What if suddenly China needed to seize those supplies for their own country? We do similar things here. Like what if any kind of slight amount of stress causes this really rickety just in time system to start breaking down? So I started looking into that. Um, it wasn't super rigorous. I wasn't employed to do it, so I didn't do a lot of it, but it was interesting to see like that. I mean, we're looking at it in terms of supply chain. And from what I was able to tell, that was the big shift in the way that corporations were run somewhere in the later 20th century. There is a like Boeing, for instance, went from a company run by people who at least sort of knew what engineering was and could appreciate that kind of work and were pretty successful. And I think they developed a lot of inertia for themselves as a firm that to this day kind of carries them along. But at a certain point, they realized that the, they were not going to gain in efficiency. Um, they were not going to increase profit by engineering better planes. They were going to increase profit by engineering better supply lines for the company, better ways of procuring um, cheaper, quicker, so you ended up with a company culture where they'll hire a bunch of new, a bunch of engineers, work them, you know, like 14 hours a day. And then as soon as the project's over, it falls through, like lay 75% of them off and provide constraints that kind of make no sense if you're somebody who's building a plane. It's not something I can really get deeply into, but when you're building a plane, you know, you or I might think that safety is important or like, a certain amount of like design integrity. Um, yeah, that maybe everybody should understand how the parts of a plane are going to connect together, not have them all build them separately and then hope that they snap together and then have people built like wings that don't connect to the body of a plane because no one explained to them how it's supposed to. Exactly. And it also you end Which up did happen. really... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which did... That's not a hypothetical. That did happen at Boeing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And you end up with really, um, really different, we'll say, like levels of experience and competency between the different teams who are doing different things. And it ends up being kind of a let not the right hand know what the left is doing, which is not really what you want when you're trying to design a single system that's supposed to fly. Mm -hmm. um, but the sort of big message from that was like, no one cares. Like the people who are running this company don't care. No one on the board is ever going to care about that. It just doesn't matter because that's not where anyone's head is. Um, well, that's not how they make their money, really. And you it know? was a similar thing when the, wasn't it the like the guys who were supposed to be the COVID czars who were appointed by like Pence or something were two Wall Street guys. I think it sort of speaks to a general mindset we have that that is 
domain specific knowledge in every domain is really just like finance and supply chains. And it doesn't actually matter what's going on um, underneath the hood anymore. So that was sort of how I got started into looking at this stuff. And I think that that presents such a strange picture to someone who's, you know, like you would just assume that the modern world runs somewhat well because things seem to be kind of spectacular, even if we're used to it. It's still like, if you stop and think about it, like, oh, the sky is full of planes. There's sort of corporations that span the globe that all communicate with each other's different parts. And like, they're coordinating this massive effort. And so you think like, well, whatever our faults, whatever the severe moral failings that exist in the globe, like at least things run well, you know, at least we mm-hmm. have a certain commitment and a kind of like technical integrity. But then when you start looking at it, you realize that, that's not really true and that it almost feels like the only way we're even able to stay afloat is because of the inertia that firms like Boeing or, you know, parts of the U S government created for themselves close to, you know, 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you mean momentum rather than inertia, right? Cause momentum keeps you going inertia. You have to overcome. All right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean the point, holds you know like you know here's the other thing right okay so let's let's have a story right um so i'm gonna look this up real quick because i have this here and i'm gonna read some stats because they're pretty pretty alarming okay so i want to look at what's called a vertically integrated firm and a vertically integrated firm is what we used to have in America. And what that means is that by and large, everything that goes into, let's say a car, and we're going to talk about Ford in this case, um, is owned by Ford. Each step of the process, right? Henry Ford himself was so obsessed with this idea uh, that he even made a deal with the Brazilian government to buy out part of the r- Amazon uh, so that he could have access to the rubber trees there to manufacture his own tires. Like this is an extreme level of vertical integration, right? Um, so we're just going to look at some stats. Uh, okay. So this is from Barry C. Lynn's The End of the Line, which is probably the most helpful layman's history of what happens to supply chains in America in the post-war era. Um, okay. So this is about Ford's River Rouge industrial complex, which was built on 2000 acres, three miles outside of Detroit. Quoting by 1926, when Ford launched his model, a, the Rouge had grown to 93 billion, 93 buildings and 75,000 employees and was able to turn out 4,000 cars per day. The operation was linked together by 120 miles of conveyors, 30 miles of internal roads, and 90 miles of railroad track, including an elevated railway that ran from factory to factory on the complex. Steel emerged from Ford's foundry and passed into the stamping presses and machine shops, then out into buildings that made most of the components before wending back toward the final assembly line. The Rouge was the single greatest manufacturing complex the world has ever seen. Iron, ore, and coal were offloaded at one end. Finished automobiles 
drove onto railroad cars on the other. Right, that is the picture. That's like the platonic ideal of the integrated firm, right? Okay, so my mom's dad worked for GM, right? He worked on the line. Um, and uh, <laughs> I sent her a clip of these stats because I was like, hey, these are pretty incredible stats from your hometown, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know? Uh, because like anybody who grew up in Detroit, my mom is proud to come from the Motor City. And uh, <clears throat> my mom pointed out that the Rouge River ran behind her house and that it didn't freeze in the winter uh, and that it was basically a super fun site almost that you couldn't sl swim in because the pollution was too terrible. And so on one hand, we see like incredible industrial endeavor and sort of its long-term consequences. But I see in there also like a story of sort of giving up on the hope of modernization. And at the same time, we also realize that the firms like uh, Ford's River Rouge plant don't exist the way that they used to anymore. Everything that I just enumerated about River Rouge now exists in part in some other country. And this starts to happen around the 80s and 90s. Um, because the Japanese automotive industry starts crushing the American industry. And um, at the same time, you have sort of the logistics revolution pulled together by FedEx, Cisco, and Walmart. Um, and real supply chain squeeze knowledge marshaled by companies like Dell that then takes these vertically integrated firms and puts parts of these industries all over the world under contract work, like John just said. So now when we look at why can't we do a new deal, we have to realize that industry has changed in a way that you can't just bring a vertically integrated firm where 85% of what that firm does happens pretty much only in one state or a few states in the continental United States. And you say, okay, we're all going to get together and we're going to figure this out because that's not how that works anymore. You can't really bring them to the table anymore. And labor has been fractured too, right? I think the wrong view here is that the state is this neutral instrument that is uh, sort of a clearinghouse uh, for how to neutrally govern and best practices on behalf of the American people at large, and that um, when it's in a state of decay, it doesn't do that, and when it's healthy, it does do that. Rather, uh, I think the best way to look at it as a place where class antagonisms get ventilated and compromised upon, usually that's going to skew towards capital and the upper classes, um, but that what the state does is going to be a product of what type of class combinations and class struggles we're seeing at the time. So unfortunately, that means that the CARES Act like, shouldn't really be a surprise because what industry was going to be corralled, it's not organized the way it used to be anymore. And moreover, as John rightly pointed out, uh, no one gives a shit up at the top. <laughs> like they're not interested in that anymore, you know? Yeah, I think one of the things that it always made me ask myself is so, there is clearly like a trajectory where 
the vertical integration was just going to go out the window mm -hmm. and it kind of makes you wonder like, you know, is that some sort of like, you know, to use it metaphorically, like a deep historical telos to this project, like was mm -hmm. vertical integration only ever going to be a really short sort of brief period created by really certain circumstances that we can now look back on with some kind of nostalgia, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, like a brief dream where things were run with an eye towards robustness mm. rather than peak perhaps efficiency in other regards where mm -hmm. stress tolerance, whether or not that was the, the, the specific goal was certainly built into the system. Um, and kind of like proved itself pretty well, I think, like having everything more directly under your nation state's direct control. Like, well, that's just a lot of stuff you can marshal. Like if you've ever played a, you know, like a paradox map game of World War II or something, you know mm -hmm. that if your country doesn't have industrial capacity, like all you're gonna be doing is watch other people come like blow you up because mm -hmm. you can't make tanks, you yeah. can't make trucks, you don't have oil, you don't have food, you know what I mean? Like maybe you have guys with guns and like wheat and you're just mm -hmm. hoping that somehow you can like hang in there. Until yeah, or that you have your... enough like luxury resources to where you can make an alliance with a more powerful yeah. nation state, right? I mean, that's sort of the lesson of like the first half of a game of civilization. You know? And the interesting thing will be like, okay, so that's the, that was the condition of like, I don't know, um, Belarus or something, but mm -hmm. like, what would it be like when that's the condition of the United States of America? And right. Yeah. And I think we're living through that now. I mean, I think, yeah. Talking about it being within the bounds of the nation state, the way you did, I think is absolutely crucial. So like, COVID-19 is sort of the perfect check on a certain type of internationalism and a certain type of globalism that has really broken out since the Berlin Wall fell, you know, um, and co-emergent with that are certain modes of production, uh, certain assemblages of a, of a society. It's very interesting to read guys like um, uh, Galbraith the Older, uh, and his book, like the new industrial state or the affluent society. And you realize that he's got this profound fear of like middle managers. Um, right. Because in a vertically integrated firm, you need a bunch of people to manage what's happening in the firm. Right. That's how the company stays legible to itself. But uh, if you're just contracting shit out, you don't need any of those people. Right. So this whole thing that was a concern for like, 20, 30 years in the mid-century just disappears like seemingly overnight by the time you get to the 90s. And with mm. that goes the idea that uh, a nation state can recruit all of this stuff. So like, look, in Quinn Slobodian's Globalists, his sort of like intellectual history of neoliberalism, which I highly recommend people read, um, even though I think it has some faults, he does a very good job of explaining how the Habsburg empire worked as a model for these uh, thinkers like von Mises, Hayek. I mean, he's also more interested in like what are called the ordo liberals. I'm not going to get into that now, but I think we can see the fruits of some of their ideas in our day-to-day -day lives. Right. And one of those is that global market flows are going to be encased 
from any national tinkering, especially and pretty much exclusively from below. In other words, this means nobody's going to democratize the economy and nobody's going to screw up any of these huge trade block agreements. Right. And for them, the Habsburg empire was like a model for this or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a model for this because it was the idea that you sort of, you know, I think Ellen Mikeson's wood is really good on articulating this. um, That uh, one of the things that Marx very successfully pointed out was that in uh, capitalist liberal democracies, you get a cleft between politics and economy and the order liberal project was basically uh, one of the neoliberal projects. There are several uh, that tried to successfully achieve that at the nation state level. And once you achieve that legally and sort of financially uh, firms are soon to follow, right? Or perhaps some of this is co-emergent. I'm not like totally clear on the history here, but it means that a nation state can't just be like, okay, uh, how many masks do can we produce? Well, let's call all the major companies. I'm the head of state, and we'll figure this out. And what we're going to do is we're going to put together some sort of uh, voluntarist uh, cooperative consortium for an emergency period between all of these firms, between like 3M and I don't know Procter and Gamble. Who are, I know 3M makes masks. I don't know who else does, right? And we're going to figure out. Uh, we're going to use. Um, you know, stimulus money or whatever uh, to help pay for these companies to create all this stuff to just make it readily available to the American people, right? That's the benefit of having it under a nation state, right? But if you have international market flows that can't be tinkered with by the nation state um, and you've had a hollowing out of politics um, that has led to lack of funding in state stuff because the idea of politics is hollowed out as soon as you fully realize that cleft between politics and economy, right? Um, then you're going to run into a lot of trouble. And I think COVID-19 was the perfect gut check for that. So in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger saw what happened in um, New Orleans and he said it during Hurricane Katrina. And he was just like, this can't happen to California, right? He was like a conservative of the old type that had this sort of like, I need to protect the people under my aegis. And so I'm willing to marshal state resources to do that. Right. Yeah. So he buys all these masks. He buys all these respirators. There are earthquakes in California. There are fires. We're seeing them now. Sometimes they can be quite bad. That's why all those Silicon Valley companies had so many fucking masks. It's because they're used to having to deal with fires in Northern California that make it hard to breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Brown comes in the liberal Jerry Brown, um, and in true California Uber Alice uh, fashion says, you know what? A lot of this costs money and I don't want to deal with it anymore. So I'm going to sell off some of these respirators. I'm going to deplete some of the stockpiles. I don't want to keep allocating money for it. And then the whole California system for doing that fell into disrepair from when he took office after Schwarzenegger till now, which is why Gavin Newsom woke up to coronavirus when it broke out and realized that he had pretty much nothing to offer his state in terms of resources. And California was luckier than many other states because it's the fifth largest economy in the world, right? Uh, Which gives you a bigger margin for error than if you're less wealthy. I think Uh, that's interesting to think about too, because 
you could say like even if he wanted to there's no he mm-hmm. doesn't have that ability like that is no longer a part of what the governor can do and that's for anybody so put whoever you want in office and it doesn't really matter like they're going to be facing the same constraints and you know be forced to sort of look at something happen and say well i can't really do that much mm-hmm. and that's kind of Interestingly, because you mentioned the hollowing out of politics, and in a way, it makes an electoral focus seem kind of empty, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it certainly feels that way after the uh, clips I saw of like the DNC convention um, that just happened. I mean, it's not like there's a message there. It's just like Joe Biden's a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's it. And I wrote a whole thing about like what the Kamala Harris nomination means, you know, in terms of like the Democratic Party successfully um decoupling itself from the working class because the working class doesn't have any power like it used to. It doesn't have labor anymore. So it doesn't really matter as a political constituency. Yeah, and I, I certainly think you could make a case that like, well, this isn't a this is not a great long term strategy for them. Like their descendants aren't going to inherit anything good, mm-hmm. which is always interesting to think about because like when we talked about how they don't care, it also seems like that's one of the things they don't care about. And it's, I mean, in popular sort of publications, you'll see the thing of like, Oh, the rich all have these islands they're going to go to when it all gets bad. Like they mm-hmm. have the private jet on standby or whatever. And like whether or not that's true or like would even work if that actually went down, like, there's a sort of sense that like it does feel like a large part of the governing class is sort of operating without a view to anything further out than 10 years. And I guess that's what brings up for me, like when I'm steeped in material sort of analysis and concerns, I end up with, a kind of picture of a psychology before me that seems like to put it one way, just completely decadent. Yeah. And I think it's important to mean that in the technical sense, right? Um, Where there's a (laughs) decadent can often just mean like a fat or like, um, you know, in certain, the way certain conservatives mean it is just like uh, these like, fucking queer debutantes like screwing each other and wearing weird makeup and not doing their martial duty to the state or whatever and i don't think that's really what you or i mean by that uh whether or not that's related to this uh, that's for someone else to decide but i more mean like after me the deluge like that is sort of the governing idea right now is who cares what happens in 15 years yes and operating without a view to posterity which is the ultimate falling away from tradition. Yeah. And what can you really even say about that? Especially when you're like, Oh, that's endemic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like what, what can how do you I come do, back from that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's weird. It's weird to deal with as a person who just lives there and just wants things to be like, okay. Mm-hmm. And you're like, is that even like, a, is that going to be a possibility for us to like want something like that? Right. And on paper, like it should be, I think that's sort of the dislocating thing 
right? Is we get told all the time that we're in this like democracy, that the people are the ultimate sovereign, you know, that which should also mean that certain things are possible, right? Like um, the people should be able to decide. So that no longer seems like the case. And I think we've been really slow to fully accept that that's the case because we've had the benefit of living in a very prosperous country um, while it has been de-democratizing and switching from a you know developed country to what I would describe as an undeveloping country. I've always had this image, at least for the past couple of years, of the U.S. as kind of like this thing where if you can be pumping tons of wealth and credit through it, like it looks pretty good. Like mm-hmm. it's nice. It's nice to be there. Things tend to work out. Okay. For most people. And for the people it doesn't work out. Okay. For like, you don't really have to think about it for too long. But as soon as this kind of like really extreme amount of finance, like slows down at all, a lot of cracks start to appear like very mm-hmm. quickly and it makes you think like there are probably other systems operating in the world right now that have never had quite this much and seemingly run with like quite a bit more stability and more concern. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to do more with less. Whereas we were really able to feel like, Oh, this is the best place in the world only with perhaps like the most resources the world had ever seen Mm -hmm. propping up what was otherwise a kind of like decentralized sort of rotting system Mm -hmm. where you only, you only see that it's, you're only able to really see that once the resources start to dwindle and it's not even like, Oh, we have so much less now. It's like we went from 100 to like 98. Yeah. And that's enough for you to say like, Oh, what's going on here? Like, does anyone care about anything? I just went through an ancient political seminar and it was really interesting at the very end, our professor asked like, okay, so out of everyone we read, whose society would you like to live in? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, I feel like modern day Aristotle would be, like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. And I, that's not so bad. Like I can mm-hmm. live there given everything I'm living through right now and seeing going on <laughs> around me. Like, yeah, why not? Maybe I just want to live in like a paternalist authoritarian society and like, yeah, I don't care. I'll keep my mouth shut. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Is there a steak on my plate every night? Fine. Fuck it, man. And the shocking thing for me, cause I never would have expected this is that like the vast majority of the class was like, yeah, totally. Like, I actually don't give a shit about civil liberties. I just want like to know that I'll have a place to live and that I won't be the victim of like racist violence. Mm-hmm. And if you could give me like a place like that, then I really don't care what I'm allowed to say. Which, totally. I mean, I think that's, I, I mean, that's really, I mean, it's hard to imagine another time in America where people wouldn't even in like a knee jerk way, recapitulate unthought through moralisms and maxims about the greatness of American democracy or democracy in general. That's what was so shocking is that I never expected anyone in that seminar to even close to agree with me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
you know, I was thinking about it like this, right? So I went and watched um, Astra Taylor's uh, documentary about democracy. I forget what it's called, but she put it out at the same time she released her book, which I haven't read, um, called, um, you know, uh, We've Never Had Democracy, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the first, okay, so first one thing that's really funny, she's talking to Wendy Brown, who's a scholar that I generally like, even if I don't always agree with her. Wendy Brown says like, yeah, more and more, I just think that democracy is impossible outside of like a geographically like bounded situation. And then the democracy, the documentary just cuts to like someone else talking. (laughs) Um, And I was like, man, like, looks like your documentary about the implications about the death of democracy is not really going to explore too many implications. Um, But um, there's this great, what she does that I do appreciate about that documentary, because I think it's the most helpful part is she just interviews people, right? She interviews a guy who um, is a barber, and like spent some time in prison and read like some of the great books in prison and read Machiavelli, like clearly very closely and like quotes from Machiavelli. Um, and is like very copped on to what's happening. I think he's like probably one of the most insightful people she speaks to. Um, but she's at like the, this Trump rally or something. And uh, she's, she asked people what democracy means to them. Right. She has this young, young woman. Trump supporter. She's like, what does democracy mean to you? And she was just like, I don't care. I care about the American dream. And I was like, the fact that those are decoupled is really something, isn't it? Like, she's just like, yeah, like, I just want to make sure that like the rules are so that if I work hard, I rise above. Yeah. And like that, that's what happens. She's like, I don't, I don't know what democracy means. I don't care about that. Like I care about other things. And, um, and it's like, yeah, how could you know what that means? Like, yeah. Where would you experience that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like all the little platoons of society have been scattered to the wind, you know? Um, I get that there are still groups that meet, right? So the thesis of that famous book bowling alone isn't totally true that there's been this complete atomization of society you know, like religious groups still exist, you know, I think the, the um, hand wringing over secularization and uh, social dissolution is really more of like a pet cause of the bourgeois chattering class in like New York, because they all come from that environment. But I think if you go to flyover country, it's very clear people still go to church and shit um, and are still around each other. But uh, yeah, I think what's important is that, um, any of those things, like the way Tocqueville talks about it in Democracy in America is that he's in part scared of democracy because if America's sort of patient zero in the way that he thinks it is uh, for this thing that's definitely going to spread globally, like all anyone cares about is local politics and like who's in the Rotary Club. And like mm-hmm. how to get what to happen at the local level so that cer- these certain things can get taken care of or whatever. There's a lack of sort of um, aristocratic refinement in things in and of themselves. It's far too instrumentalist or something for him, right? Uh, so what happens when you still have some of the things he correctly analyzes about America, like its lack of interest in history or tradition or culture, 
Um, and uh, culture as he sees it, by the way. Uh, and but you don't have the instrumentalist like local politics thing either. Like, what is that? What type of thing are we dealing with here? Yeah, you bring up Tocqueville, and it's interesting because I remember in his like famous description of what aristocratic society is. It's for him, I think, like we said, with no eye to posterity is the way that we currently operate. But for him, it's the exact opposite. Like mm-hmm. aristocracy is like he doesn't talk about wealth or like privilege or whatever, which like for him, I guess that's not as important as the fact that they are completely ensconced in a system where what happened before and what's going to happen next are just as important, if not more important than what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And that he's clearly seeing that like that is somewhat determined by social relations and by material conditions. And that mm-hmm. if you don't have a society where that kind of thinking is possible, then it's, you know, I think we're seeing it right now, that kind of thinking just won't happen. And whether or not we need to develop an aristocracy where that, you know, like that's neither here nor there, but I find it more interesting the way in which for him, it's all about establishing like a duration, like a meaningful duration in your existence. And you'll see, you know, I think like if you look at people who are somewhat nostalgic thinkers, you'll see that what they often highlight in looking back to like the magnates of yesteryear, like uh, Ford or, you know, mm-hmm. um, those guys is they built stuff to last and they built companies to last and they put things away for the future. And mm-hmm. even in this sort of like industrial capitalism, which you might be inclined to say like, Oh, the sort of, capitalism dissolves things and it clears things away. So obviously it's going to destroy that stuff. But there was this moment where capitalism seemed to exist alongside with these kinds of values that, you know, however you personally feel about them, they seem conducive to like perpetuating existence. And Mm -hmm. so like if a nation state has these values, it'll be interested in perpetuating its own governance into the future. Like, it would like for there to be a U.S. president 500 years from now, just mm-hmm. as much as it likes for there to be one today, because it thinks that that's good, and that that's worth doing, and that stability, and like all the things that kind of you know, like the things that random students might say, oh, that's available to you in Singapore, but maybe not available to me here. Like food, a house that's not horrible, like things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It feels like these all kind of circle around each other. Like these are an interesting set of concerns. And the last time we're really able to see that they were also the concerns of everybody together, or at least you can feel that way would have been like the immediate post-war period. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's true, that's like the feeling. And I don't know, like, well, it seems like now we're undergoing um, what I've called, and you and I've tried to develop this idea a little bit in our own private conversations, is civic atrophy. Yeah. Uh, and this exists at, um, it's related to everything we're saying, but also exists at many levels, you know. Um, 
like I'll use an example of a friend who is trying to like restart his union or whatever. And like, um, you know, none of those guys remember how to hold like a union meeting, which is like crazy when you think about it. Like the, the basic rules of decorum for a meeting, like ha- aren't internalized in anyone in the union. Right. So how could it ever decide to advocate for itself in the public sphere? Um, or even internally, um, or people not being able to clearly articulate what a union steward training is, which is how you learn how to perpetuate the union. So it's like, it can't even articulate to people how to go get trained to make sure that the union sticks around and can be handed down to the next generation of, you know, whatever industry it is that's going to come up. Right. I mean, this is a small example from a, a small population-wise small state in the country, right? In a small town. But I think the fact that there is some sort of rhyming between that and uh, the default mode um, with no eye to posterity, as you say, and the upper echelons is very, very troubling. Yeah, it's interesting that it, it, it brings to mind for me um, just a great book about the British working class and kind of the the milieu of we'll say like the late 19th century um sort of autodidacticism mm-hmm. of the british working class and they were just very like well-read people and they were really interested in educating themselves kind of on their own terms and there were a lot of schools that they set up solely for people who work to be able to go learn mm-hmm. um yeah they read a lot of the great books right yeah and it wasn't like these schools weren't ever going to connect them to like academics, you know, they were never going to be professionals or, Mm -hmm. or like operate in the university setting. These were solely just so they could learn and they would attend these just to get the knowledge, which is sort of weird today. But um, there's also like, there was a book called mathematics for the million, which was a product of this time, which is all of math from like basic algebra till the beginnings of calculus put into a single book for you laid out teaching you history along the way. Like you're going to be learning how mathematics, how it developed right alongside actually learning how to do these mathematics. And it was written by somebody who in the introduction, he talks about how he kind of, he despises Plato because mathematics for them was a, an aristocratic concern where they would lay around and mystically think about numbers but mm-hmm. for him, math is supposed to be for everybody. Everyone mm-hmm. should learn it. Everyone should profit by it. It was a democratic thing. And he saw writing this book as a democratic effort. That's really the people beautiful. reading this book, oh, absolutely. The people reading this book were the guys going to work every day. Like that's who this book was for. And that's mm-hmm. primarily who read it. Um, so there's, I, I think like you were trying to say that there's a certain basic like level of organizational know-how, institutional know-how, but also like, I think too, they're also the people who formed unions were in the basic possession of like pretty good educations. And the book makes the point that oftentimes they were much better educated than the like actual British aristocracy of that time mm-hmm. who were more and more kind of turning into rubes, which I think, you know, you'll find many of them today. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, one only needs to read a David Brooks column to understand the poverty of the American elite's intellectual capability. 
You know, yeah. I mean, we have been subjected to the rule of experts who've been vomited up by these institutions for generation after generation, and they are incapable of running any institution, but all they know how to do is self-aggrandize and point to themselves as the continuing solution to the problems that they themselves create. It's an incredible con that like, can only happen when you have um, absolutely incompetent uh, governors at the top. You know, I mean, it's... One so, of my big questions... Oh, sorry. One of my big questions actually related to that has always been like when the, the institutions we're thinking of like IVs and stuff started to become important nationally. And like those people really started to fill out the governments, mm -hmm. um, the successive administrations and posts. I think you could at least say like, okay, whatever problems you have with the ideologies held by those people, they were at least pretty smart. Like they mm -hmm. actually knew how to build institutions or, to build on institutions that they came into, whether or not those were for good reasons or to good purposes, you can at least say that like their instrumental knowledge was pretty good. But something happened in an extremely short period of time where the people coming out of these institutions today seem to have like one tenth of the ability of the people who were coming yes. out of these institutions, like not but 40 or 50 years ago, which I have no idea what to make of that, but that's one of the things that I, always comes up for me when we talk about this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, uh, American politics have always been an elite game, uh, despite uh, certain people that have come from humble means and ascended to its top, LBJ being an example. Um, and... Part of it's like this, right? So the New Deal, and it's the second New Deal, right? Which sort of begins in 36 when Roosevelt wins his second term. Um, hired tons of young people. And what's interesting is a bunch of people realizing that there was this great governmental project going on to sort of like save the nation. Some were just glory-seeking journeymen. Others were, you know, I mean, you have a variety of types of interest and psychological types attracted to that type of work. Um, but they all started to take classes that were geared towards that type of work. And so you have to realize that these are people that grow up um, into their adulthood, internalizing and understanding what it is to build institutions from the ground up and how to keep them running, you know, um, on, Fortunately for these institutions, because they're made by a cloistered group, they're handed down through the cloistered group. And it's a group that becomes disconnected from the well-being of this. And I think one way that we might recognize that now um, in a different way, but I think is symptomatic of this problem that we're talking about, is how the stock market keeps going up despite the fact that unemployment uh, is still rampant and a huge problem. It's crisis now, who knows, the market can change and stuff like that. But I think we have to realize that one of the reasons why uh, it doesn't seem like there's another future on the table, why things aren't as protean in the sense of the crisis of the 30s, is that uh, Wall Street and Main Street aren't suffering um, in the same way. Uh, the setback of the 30s was catastrophic, even for industrial capital let alone labor, right? Um, 
right now there seems to be a class, a certain strain of the middle class, uh, and then everyone above them whose money is tied to the market really, and perhaps their property values um, in certain very uh, de facto price protected areas for real estate. Um, And so who cares if there are a bunch of unemployment problems on some level because their money isn't tied up in that. And as long as that functions, everything's going to continue as it was, right? And so I think we have here like structural conflicts of interests um, that are now being thrown into stark relief or being developed in real time that are building onto this trajectory of civic atrophy, a kind of decadence, as you say, and also a type of waning of politics and with it a waning of the nation state. Yeah. And I think the hope always is, well, like maybe one guy will be somewhere in that mess. Who's like, Oh, like this, we have to do something about this or in my lifetime, things won't be so good for me anymore. Like, which is a definitely, I think that's a true thought. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, it's even worse than after me, the deluge, because it's not even going to be after them. It's like in 10 years, the deluge, like, <laughs> you yeah. know, in, in terms of the fact that they're not entirely insulated from the health of the rest of the country and they can kick it down the road for a while, probably. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that you know, maybe it is just kind of a collective class delusion of like, they can't really personally imagine any of this mattering to them later. Mm-hmm. And so they don't, but you would, you would hope that like, I guess that's the thought, like kind of, I always think about, you know, like late antique Rome where you'll have, you know, a couple of guys who are like, Oh, let's, we need to do some structural reforms or this is all going to fall apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so you'll, you'll get like one guy who seems like just really brilliant and puts a few things in place. And then the historical verdict is like, he bought the empire like 300 more years or mm-hmm. something like that. And, you know, perhaps it was never going to be a system where you could prop up forever, but there is a clear recognition And I think you see this probably globally, honestly, if you look at the history of any country, this is one of the things that comes up again and again is, you know, ignoring the vast majority of the people in the country and like how they're doing, like that has always been an issue, like when it's rampant, like it has bothered the ruling class because generally speaking, the ruling class has had an understanding of society that leads them to know that like whether or not you're on top, the people do constitute this society and like, they're the reason you have food at Mm -hmm. some point. So if you don't take care of them a little bit, like, you know, it's all over for you, whether that's in 10 years or, you know, Mm -hmm. like your son, maybe like something will happen to one of you. You have skin in the game there's a kind of understanding that you have skin in the game. And I don't think it's true that they don't have skin in the game right now, but it seems to be true that they're unable to realize that they do. Like it's too far off. It's too unimaginable. I don't know, but. Right. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, in some ways. So here's the sort of, um, 
maxim or whatever I came up with. I'm sure it's not an original idea, but this is the language I put around it. And I think I told you about this at the outbreak of this whole crisis. Uh, and it's the, my, my decline rule of thumb that um, a country is in decline when the, self the pursuit of self-interest for its ruling class undermines the foundations that make them the ruling class. Right? Yeah. It starts, it's the snake that starts to eat itself. So here's some challenges to that. Um, I think part of me when I had that thought, and I'm not sure if it's totally true anymore, and here, here's why. So it seems to me that we can have uh, an incredibly unequal United States and a chaotic United States that because of dollar hegemony and because of the unique features of the American ruling class and the way that supply chains have worked out, et cetera, et cetera, that America doesn't really stop being a global superpower that benefits its top segment, right? Um, and so I think perhaps a mistake that I was making there is that I was using my fate as an everyday American citizen as a way to understand the fate of my country, right? I was implicitly assuming uh, togetherness in those two things because I am a product of um, a certain mode of education, you know, a certain social context or whatever that has instilled in me the idea that America is um, a democracy that is held together by the idea of itself. What I'm realizing is that that is probably just no longer the case given everything we've already said. Um, and it's become very hard for me to reckon with what's happening because it feels like there are assumptions I didn't even know I had that are not only now becoming clear to me, but are also being destroyed in the process. Yeah. I, it's interesting because it kind of shifts a question that we asked earlier, which was, kind of like Abraham Lincoln, you know, will this thing perpetuate itself into the future and do they even mm. care? And that's sort of saying like, will this, will this society perpetuate itself? Well, it's like Republican experiment was the way that he meant it. Um, a nation so conceived, but now we're asking, will dollar hegemony perpetuate itself into the future? <laughs> or will that yeah. fall apart? And that's the real question now. And I think that's perhaps like on some level, I, I do think that it isn't really under immediate threat, but that's where the long view comes back into play again. Like, will it matter in a hundred years? You know, like mm -hmm. we won't be alive for that, but typically you have to think to yourself, like, well, if a country is kind of just going to, in a way, like third worldify the vast majority of its interior and then, 
turn its upper class into like a weird like pseudo comprador thing you know what i mean it, it is really bizarre the way in which like everyone used to want to say like colonialism is coming home well it is but in like really weird ways where mm-hmm. you know it, it'll be interesting to see what happens i don't know like i think some people think that the future is going to be the realization that there's a certain level of unrest that's just not tenable and they'll have to put out some kind of ubi sort of thing and stimulate enough consumer activity that people just don't lose it psychologically like that they can continue to do the things that yeah they can consume basically and like if you can just sort of placate people and it doesn't really matter what they do because like productive activity is no longer really like that big of a concern for many Mm. segments of society here um like it does sound like probably a workable short-term solution but it's hard to imagine that really being meaningfully competitive with like some other country out there that is bringing like modern high-tech manufacturing all with under its aegis and Mm -hmm. turning Mm -hmm. itself into a place that will actually possess like material capabilities and you know bannon actually put out an article um where he was saying the reason we need an economic war with china is because we have allowed them they're like that's what he thinks that they're pursuing mm-hmm. and i think it's possible for people to be overly optimistic about the the china's immediate future mm-hmm. it relies maybe on not looking at a lot of basic concerns they're going to have regarding natural resources and water especially and mm-hmm. big problems that could threaten the stability of their state but putting right. that aside because it has it's a one-party system it has a level of stability or even unity that i just don't think is present in any society let alone one as uh, big as theirs you know well it's actually interesting to see that i think regionalism is one of the biggest problems they have yeah. governmentally they're totally. central like we think that it's so centralized but like the central government can only do certain things and the biggest problem they have is the fact that regional parties can kind of do whatever they want um, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent they can defy the central government successfully Mm -hmm. and i think you saw within the whole the narrative of the outbreak like the fact that it was kept from beijing for so long is kind of evidence to the fact that they're not omniscient Um, their control is not omniscient but laying all that aside, like the, the sort of Bannon idea about China is that high-tech manufacturing is going to be centralized in China. That's the trajectory they're on. The trajectory we're on is natural resource colony. Like we'll cut down trees and we'll mail them there and they'll do interesting things with the trees. Mm-hmm. And the people who run the country will sort of like, that's why I said Comprador because they'll profit off of this relationship like they already are. That's sort of the fear is there will be a class of people who that's materially very nice for them. The vast majority of us who would have been working in those high tech manufacturing centers are now going to be working in very low tech resource extraction or just doing nothing at all. Like wherever you happen to be and whatever opportunities happen to occur to you. And so he says that given this, he thinks that your choices are economic war or kinetic war. 
And I wouldn't bring that up to say like, oh, I think he's definitely right about all these things. Mm-hmm. But it's a fair point that like financial significance alone doesn't seem like it can perpetuate itself indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to see like what happens. I mean, the next 10 years are probably going to be a watershed moment. Um, and it seems like there are a few things on the table. So uh, one of them might be um, ironically within a hundred years, um, sort of the unraveling of the things that uh, gave the United States its prestige and its power. Um, another might, thing might be like a more multipolar world um, or something like that, where there are new power sharing agreements or whatever. Um, and uh, there also might be recombinations of alliances within Europe, right? Um, I don't know how much uh, these things ex- exclude each other, but I think like the Serbian response to like Chinese aid was like pretty telling. Um, I'm not familiar. Yeah. So, I mean, it's also important to realize that it was sort of like, um, you know, if anybody wants to like know what's up about what's happening in the Balkans, you can check out the Balkanist, which is edited by Lily Lynch. You can find her on Twitter. Um, and she had a great appearance on the podcast, Alpha Bunga Bunga. Um, where she pointed out that the Serbian president, um, whose name I forget, um, during the outbreak of coronavirus, uh, was like, European Brotherhood is just pretty words on a piece of paper. Like, you know, uh, EU no longer my best friend. Like, <laughs> CCP is now my best friend, you know. Um, and... Uh, now, in part, he was doing that because um, it was an election year. Um, Serbia is like a almost a one-party state in a way that's very interesting. Um, so I don't know how much this guy really has to run, but part of it was just to generate fervor in the base who like it when their guy sticks a thumb in the eye of the EU, you know? Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, yeah, I, I feel that. Um, and uh, the other thing is that... Um, but parts of that agreement were real. In other words, like facial recognition software from China is now all over Serbia. And that seemed mm-hmm. to happen like overnight after that happened, right? So there are real things happening beyond just electoral theater. Yeah. Um, and the most fun part is, I'm sure it was at least developed in part by like Google. So it's all making its way around the world. Right, yeah. I mean, that was sort of what was crazy about... Um, watching uh, the guys from like Facebook and like Amazon or whatever, like confront, get confronted by politicians and Google basically like lying on behalf of like the Chinese government (laughs) being like, uh, uh, this is not the intellectual property theft you're looking for, (laughs) you know, whether we think like, IP stuff is like important or should exist at all. as like another debate. I think what's important is like how it plays out currently, um, you know, and what relationships uh, these major firms that seem to be absolutely anti-fragile when it comes to crises, like the ones we're experiencing now and why um, perhaps their relationship to foreign entities makes it more difficult to have the sort of New Deal model that people keep pointing out 
as something that we need to revive and push for. Yeah, I think you're right about the the idea that this will be a watershed moment, especially in the sense that for my part, I have no idea like what this current system will generate in terms of responses to this, but I think we're going to find out like what the new pattern is. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's really, yeah. Like when we say that, like, uh, what do we mean by nothing is possible? That might be a good place to end <laughs> in terms yeah. of like what we're thinking about here. Um, certainly things are possible. Uh, certainly like um, we're still living in historical time. You know, I think uh, the way it feels now is that there is a pervasive culture of fear and pessimism. Um, there is a sense of civic atrophy. There is materially rising um, inequality, power disparity in society along class lines. And that uh, it is difficult to gauge the physics of politics and economy for anyone walking around today. That the reason why nothing feels possible is because it is almost impossible to explain the mechanism by which things happen anymore. Um, And that feels like part of it to me. How about you? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. It's something I remember actually encountering that funny enough in uh, Baudrillard when he talks about there's a certain level of symbolic distance between you and reality. Mm -hmm. And he would say that in Pharaonic Egypt, that was actually like a really small distance. Mm. Like this guy had all the power. You had no power symbolically. That's what you understood. And so it was very, things were very clear. You knew why things happened and where they came from, whether or not you described those in terms that would be familiar to me. It doesn't matter. But I think that he would say now, like our condition is such that we have 9 million symbolic regimes between us and anything else. And almost none of it makes any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And it like that kind of makes, at least it resonates with me as an explanation. And it's sort of, you've seen so many different versions of that story. Like there's like Rick Roderick just talking about how many reams of paper Washington generates every mm-hmm. single year and how, none of that means anything really like, or how could I even look through that and find out what meant something and what didn't mean anything to me? Like no one has the time to really look at what's going on around them. And to, you know, I think in order to generate knowledge, one might say that you, it would be the exclusionary act of saying, this is meaningful. This is not like, this is knowledge. Mm -hmm. This is like a noise, noise signal, that kind of thing. It's really hard to do, even for people who spend a lot of time like us just thinking about it instead of doing something else. It's a very difficult like task. And I, it's interesting because people are trying to come at it from so many different angles um, out here in the world today of like outcast lump and prole intellectuals, you know, like Mm -hmm. everyone has their own sort of interesting niche way of trying to take it on but it's still, 
it feels like if you pulled the camera back, the shot back, you would see just this like tremendous mountain that everyone's like at the, still at the very base of trying to climb, trying to get some perspective on it. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head. It's sort of just like an incomprehensibility. Whereas I could say like, Oh, remember Napoleon? Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he wrote in and like, then he did this and then this happened and then he held the plebiscite. And then like everyone said, you're, you know, leader for life. And it was great. (laughs) And like, or even the French revolution where it's just like, okay, this is a period of like profound chaos and like bloodshed, but like some sort of order is being advocated for here. Some sort of leadership is trying to be installed in a very like clear, I shouldn't say clear in a transparent way. Mm -hmm. I think the, the stark difference felt today would be that you would get through some kind of period of chaos and then be like, well, I don't know why that happened or what it even means for me. And that's kind of like a weird, deep emptiness <laughs> to <Yeah>. feel. <laughs> well, it's the end of uh, the Coen brothers burn notice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the guy says, what did we learn? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't fucking know either. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that's where we're at. What did we learn? Uh, I don't know. Um, but hopefully we can keep trying to not know in uh, helpful and interesting ways as this continues. So thank you guys for listening to F1. And we'll see you in a week. Yeah, thank you guys. Looking forward to it.